Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new, exciting episode of Not Aspirational with Hannah Brown. I'm your host, Hannah Brown, and welcome back, everybody. I am so thrilled to be here with y'all today. I hope everyone's having a great week, all things considered. And I'm super, super excited for today's guest. Um, Before we get to her, though, if you don't follow me already, follow me at Hannah A. Brown on Instagram and Twitter and at Hannah A. Brown Zero on TikTok. If you just can't get enough of me, head on over to patreon.com slash not aspirational, where for just $5 a month, you get access to all of the bonus episodes and you also help support me and this podcast. So thank you in advance for that. Also, I guessed it on a few podcasts recently slash this week slash I don't fully know when they'll all be coming out, but please keep an eye and an ear out. Uh, I guessed it on What Else Is Going On, which is an incredible Bravo podcast hosted by friend of the pod, Taria Shondell Faison. I love her. We talked about The Bachelorette. We talked about Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Um, We had a blast. We always do. She's incredible. So check that out. What else is going on? I also guested on a couple episodes of Mixing with Moni on Moni's Patreon. And so if you're not a mixologist yet, make sure to check out Moni's podcast, Mixing with Moni. We had a blast. Talked Bachelorette. Talked Scott Disick and Amelia Hamlin. That is insanity. But head on over there. We had a great time mixing it up and chatting. Yeah. So check that all out. Um, Let's get to today's guest, though, y'all. I am so excited about today's guest. So y'all know with this rebrand, yes, I still love Bravo. Yes, I still love pop culture. Pop culture is my raison d'être. Okay, my reason to be en français. Um, also, can we just acknowledge that I had more of an accent in that moment than uh, Emily in Paris did all of season one of Emily in Paris? It's neither here nor there. Can't wait for season two. Um, but yeah, I love pop culture. I love Bravo. But I also am really passionate about mental health. And I am so excited to, with this rebrand, be able to talk to people in the mental health and wellness space. And today's guest is an unbelievable woman. We have Jessie Byer. Jessie Byer is an award-nominated speaker, a mental health advocate, and the number one best-selling author of her book, How to Heal, A Practical Guide to Nine Natural Therapies You Can Use to Release Your Trauma. She's also appeared on Off the Vine with Caitlin Bristow, casual, so she is a big fucking deal. And honestly, we had such an amazing time talking about her work and getting to know Jessie a little bit better. We talked about Jessie's story and how she went from feeling derailed from her original career plans to discovering her gifts as a speaker to help people heal. We talked about natural trauma therapies and their benefits, including but not limited to equine-assisted therapy. We talked about the power of sharing our experiences and our feelings Steps to boundary making, if it's something that's difficult for you. She had some really amazing boundary making strategies. And she also told me where to find the best donuts in Portland. And guess what, y'all? It's not at Voodoo Donuts. So without further ado, I know y'all are going to love this episode. I know y'all are going to love Jesse. Let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Jesse Beyer. All right. I am here with the one, the only Jesse Byer. Jesse, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh my God. I'm so pumped to dive into like you and your work. Um, will you really quick just tell my listeners a little bit about, like a little bit about yourself and what you do? 
Yeah. So I'm a speaker and an author and my primary kind of industry is mental health. I have a lot of personal experience with mental health struggles. I studied it in college. I've done a lot of research and expert interviews and things like that. So mental health is kind of my jam. And specifically, I love talking about trauma and trauma therapies and specifically natural and integrative trauma therapies, things that are not talk therapy, things that involve movement and animals and being outdoors and really giving people more options for healing than they may think that they have. So that's, that's kind of where my focus is. Like I said, I do a lot of speaking. I work on college campuses a lot with student government groups, Greek life groups, things like that. And just helping kind of that, that generation that's starting to become an adult and, and really starting to make decisions for themselves, figure out that, oh my gosh, mental health is actually important. And here's how I take care of it and kind of things like that. So yeah, that's kind of me professionally in a nutshell. I live in Portland, Oregon and I have a dog and a cat. So I guess that's about it. <laughs> Amazing. Wait, and didn't I hear you? And I'm so sorry if this was not you, but didn't I hear you talk about how much you love horses as like therapy animals? Yeah. So equine assisted therapy is definitely one of the therapies that I discuss in my book. And it's one of my personal favorites too. Like I'm a total horse person. I love riding. I love being around them. And so when I was like, Oh my God, this is a therapy. I was like, yes. So yeah, that is me. I literally have a friend who like this year in 2020, like rediscovered her love for like horses and horseback riding. And it has been like, she is the happiest she has been in literal years because of her time with the horses. It's incredible. It's amazing. They're just they're so mystical of animals. They're so intuitive. They're so grounded. They're so soulful. You just like look in their eyes and it's like, Oh my God, you see me, you see into my soul and things like that. So they're so powerful for healing and happiness and mindfulness and all these things that are just so great about life. That's amazing. That is like so special. And yes, you wrote your book, How to Heal, A Practical Guide to Nine Natural Therapies You Can Use to Release Your Trauma. It is a number one bestseller. Humble brag, okay? (laughs) Um, How did you like decide to write this book? Like what brought you to like that aspect of your work? Yeah, so it's it's kind of a weird story. So going back to when I was in college, I was actually going to go into the military. That was my plan after college. And I was going to go into a career field that was kind of a mixture of a trauma paramedic and a search and rescue specialist. And unfortunately, because of my previous mental health issues, I couldn't get into the military at all, unless I wanted to lie about my medical history, which is a whole nother discussion, but I didn't want to do that. So I was like, what do I do? You know, like, what do I do with my life after this? And so because I had mental health experiences, because I was passionate about that, I was like, well, guess I'm going to go to school for psychology. And so I kind of started working through school and my senior semester, my last semester, I took a class on nature-based therapies. And I was like, oh my dear Lord Jesus, this is amazing. It just opened my mind to all these different ways to heal that weren't just going and sitting and talking about it with a therapist. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of started digging some more and I was like, okay, what else is out there? And it literally was a Google search. I was like natural trauma therapies. And then all these things came up and I was like, awesome. So started digging into them. And I mean, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've been writing like little handwritten picture books since I was in first grade and things like that. So I was like, this is information that could have changed my healing journey. This was information that would have gotten me the help that I needed. It would have made that healing journey so much easier. People have to know about this. And so I just kind of decided to write the book and just dove into these therapies and it kind of came together really nicely. Oh, that's so incredible. And it's also really amazing that like, I'm sure, and I don't want to speak for you, but like with the military stuff, did you kind of in the moment see that as almost like a dead end where you were like, what the fuck? And then it actually ended up leading to this incredible opening for you? Absolutely. 100%. I literally, I, it was like a loss. I literally had to mourn the loss of that dream. And if I'm being honest, it's something I'm still working through, but mm-hmm. it was absolutely like, I don't know what to do. Cause the classes I was taking in college were to lead me to be better prepared for that career field. Mm-hmm. Everything that I was doing in terms of fitness training was to lead me to be better prepared for that career field. So I was like, everything that I've been working for is just gone. 
I don't, I don't know what to do right now. And so it was kind of just this like leap of faith of throwing myself into something that I kind of liked and it turned into this incredible career in business. So it, it worked out for sure. That's amazing. You know, I'm listening to Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights right now. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Should I read it? I'm really liking it. And I recommend it on audiobook because like the way he like talks is just so interesting. Like I just love his voice. And so hearing him tell his own stories is really cool. But he talks about how like something that may not seem like a green light, like actually is like something that seems like the end can actually be the beginning of something else. Mm -hmm. So it's like actually really, I just think it's amazing that you were able to sort of pivot and be like, okay, I have these interests. I have my own experience that I can bring to people that I want to help. And then you just like made it into an opportunity for yourself. It's amazing. Yeah. I thank you. And I think it's really interesting as well, because it would have been easy for me to be like, well, that didn't work out. Got to go to the corporate nine to five and just kind of go to that traditional path. And I've always been, I don't know, I'll just say it. I'm weird. I'm crazy. I'm kooky. I do things differently than everyone else. And Mm so I did, I knew I didn't want to do that. So I was like, how do I take what I'm passionate about, what I love, take everything horrible that happened to me and turn Mm -hmm. it into something that can help other people and change other people's lives. And the book was just the start. It's, it's been an incredible journey since then. Yes. And also like, I heard you say, was it coffee over suicide that I was listening to you on? Yes. And you were talking about how you've, you've always been someone who naturally really enjoys sharing and like, you're not afraid to like talk about things. And it's really wild because I think when you are that kind of person, it can seem like you can easily take it for granted, but that's that in and of itself is such a special trait that can be so healing to other people because it makes it safe for them to do the same. Mm-hmm. And that's really how I started is before the whole thing with the happened with the military, I just kind of started to have conversations with people mm-hmm. from high school with friends and family members and things like that. And it was just seeing their eyes kind of light up and their body relax. And they're like, Oh my God, I wasn't the only one who went through this. You know, there's someone else that struggled. There's someone else that has been through similar things that I have. I saw how healing those conversations were. And then I was like, okay, how do I make that bigger? How do I do that on a bigger scale? How do I reach more people just by talking about it? And so Mm -hmm. I kind of joke that now I just get up on stage and talk about my issues, but it really kind of is that I get up there and I talk about what I've been through and what I've learned. And it's, it's, I can't even describe how fulfilling it is to have people come up to me after my presentations and say, you are the first person I have ever heard talk about their mental health struggles. Or Mm -hmm. now I feel like I can actually go get help for what I'm going through. And that those conversations, those moments make all the potential discomfort of being so vulnerable in front of so many people, 100% worth it. Oh my gosh, I'm sure. And I also think like the scary thing about depression and anxiety, as I'm sure, you know, is like, it convinces you that you are the only person on the entire planet who feels this way, who will ever feel this way, and no one will ever be able to understand it. And so there's so much power in finding a community and like using your own voice to create one because then it makes it so much safer for everyone else who's experiencing that to be like, oh my God, I'm not the only one experiencing this. And I can talk to someone about it in a way that feels normal and doesn't make me feel like something's wrong with me or I'm broken for feeling this way. Yeah. It's so difficult and kind of tricky as well, because you're so right. Almost everyone, what is it like 25% of Americans will be diagnosed with a mental illness and something like 75% of them will struggle with their mental health at some point during their lifetime. And so, Mm -hmm. so many people have gone through probably very similar things to what other people are going through, but everyone's experience is also so unique. And there's these little nuances about each person that make them and their experiences different. And so it's Mm -hmm. finding a way to honor your own experiences and recognizing them as valid without comparing them to other people's experiences, while also recognizing that you are not alone. And there are other people out there that have struggled, that have gotten through it, and that can kind of hold that light for you as you're going through that journey yourself. 
hundred percent. The work you do is so cool. (laughs) Like my mind is blown. Um, and I'm also just so excited to have you on because like mental health is something that's always meant a lot to me, but I think I've only personally felt safe talking about it on this podcast within maybe the last like year or so. And so I've just been dying to talk to like a professional in this space. And so this is like really fucking (laughs) good. Well, I'm so glad I can have this conversation with you and your listeners. Also, you talked recently in that same interview about the danger of shoulds. And this is something like that I have been unpacking with my therapist. And I just want to hear your take on like why you think the word should can be dangerous. Yeah. So we are taught from a very young age, like when we start to learn what words are, that we should build a life that is happy and successful and fulfilling and all of these different things. And yet in society's mind, there's really only one definition of what that looks like. It's the white picket fence house, the two and a half kids, the nine to five job, you know, it looks the same, but like I just said, we're all different. We all have different experiences, different hopes and dreams and fears and all these different things. And so to shove everyone into that box of saying, this is what your life should look like is unrealistic. It's damaging. It convinces people that what they want, those little hopes that are sparking inside of them are wrong. And we shouldn't touch them and we should just kind of shove them aside in favor of being a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. Now, I know doctors, I know lawyers, they're fantastic people. There's nothing wrong with being a doctor or a lawyer, but you need to want to be a doctor or a lawyer. The great thing about today's society, especially in the technological age, is that you can do anything. Like I just said, I literally make a living talking about my issues in front of other people. And I'm sure that there's lots of other people out there that do very similar things. And so if you have that dream in your heart, if you have an idea that you want your life to look like this, even though society is saying it should look like this other thing, then you have a right and a responsibility to pursue that and not let yourself get stuck under those, well, I should do this instead, or my parents think that I should do this, or this is better for me, or, you know, any of those different beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. I... My struggle with the word should is also like on like a day-to-day basis, like, oh, I really want to just like sit here and watch this TV show, but I should, you know, do X, Y, and Z as opposed to just allowing myself to like take an hour or really however fucking long I want to like watch a TV show. Now, granted, if you're depressed and that's all you're able to do, that's another conversation, but... Yeah, just not putting all that pressure on yourself to do what you think you should be doing. Because if you want to do it, then that's what you should be doing. Yeah, and that's so true. You get into kind of that like guilty for self-care mindset, especially as an entrepreneur. I mean, I speak for myself when it's like, I watch an hour of TV or I choose to read a book about like a romance novel instead of Mm -hmm. a business book or a personal development book. And I'm like, this is such a waste of time. I should be working or I should be optimizing this ad or landing page or building this new thing. And it's like, Jesse, just breathe for a second. Like read the damn book, (laughs) have fun, enjoy this hour or two of your life because you're going to come back to your work that will never end because the to-do list never ends with Mm -hmm. more energy, with more perspective. And I've honestly gotten so much inspiration and so many different ideas from those things that are not necessarily productive. Those romance novels, those TV dramas, all those things like have taught me so much and inspired me so much. And that's something I carry into my work. So just kind of this idea of like, oh, I should be doing this or I have to justify self-care, taking time off to relax and rejuvenate. And that's just, you know, toss all that out the window for sure. Oh my gosh. I, sometimes I feel like such a hypocrite because I'm on Instagram and I'm sharing all these self-care graphics to like people who follow me being like, yes, girl, take that bubble bath. And then I never do it. I'm always like, but I don't have time to do that myself. I just want my friends to do it. I resonate with that so much. Yeah. I do the same thing where it's like mental health requires that you don't grind all the time. And then what do I do? I look at my schedule and it's like, Oh, 
Yeah. You yeah. gotta take that your own advice. You know, you have to listen to yourself sometimes too. Oh, I'm like, I'm amidst a money manifestation workshop right now. And I had to write down, I had to journal about like all my limiting beliefs around like money. And it's like, it is literally like pounded into us by society that like making money is hard work. And if you're not working hard, then like you didn't actually earn your money the right way. And I'm like, fuck that. Like Europeans don't do that. And they're happy as a clam. Yeah. I literally had that exact same thing happen in my mind and and mindset and things like that. When I started working in this business and actually Mm -hmm. recently just launched a course for other authors to help them publish their first book. And there were so many limiting beliefs that were popping up for me from the military career and from a life-saving career. And I was like, I realized I didn't feel like I deserved to make a lot of money because I wasn't saving lives with what I was making money on. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Does that mean that all preschool teachers deserve to be dirt poor because they're not saving lives? Do all artists and writers and journalists and politicians deserve to be poor because they're not saving lives? But Mm -hmm. that was such a belief that was ingrained in me because I was like, okay, the way that you live a successful and fulfilling life, my definition of that is to literally save people's lives. And Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that now. And therefore I don't deserve the success. And so there was so much work involved there of like, actually, no, let's reframe this belief because you are contributing, you are helping. And uh, yeah, that just really resonated with me because that was something I went through relatively recently too. Oh, and the power of reframing. I mean, if, if we could all just slow down enough to reframe a situation before we spiral, I mean, like, isn't that the goal? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, that's, literally everything, right? All of those spirals and negative thoughts and limiting beliefs and panic attacks, not, you know, mental illness related, but just the daily stressors of, wow, Mm -hmm. they can all be reframed and calmed down. If you can just take a look and kind of step back and say, okay, why am I freaking out right now? What is scaring me about this? Because it's not the piece of mail I just got. It's what that could mean, what that threatens me with. And when you can kind of look at it from that perspective, then you can actually do something about it and break it down and understand it instead of just getting swept away by all these fears and emotions. Yes. And asking yourself like, what concrete evidence do I have to support this anxious thought that I'm having? Like what's Mm -hmm. actually rooted in reality and what's like a narrative that my like anxious brain has literally written that's rooted in nothing. Yeah. And then what proof do I have that the opposite is true? So Mm -hmm. what proof do I have that you can make a good living being a speaker or being an artist or whatever your limiting belief is, but where Mm -hmm. is the evidence that I can do this? Because there is evidence for it. Like we are creative and genius beings, but 99% of the things have been done before. So find someone that's done it and use them as proof that you can do the same thing for yourself. Yes. Inspiration. I love that. Um, you also, oh my gosh, I have so many things in that one interview I listened to that I was like, can you talk about this? Um, you also talked about the danger of saying it's all my fault or nothing's my fault. And can you kind of expand on that idea a little bit? Yeah. All and nothing, I feel like are just as dangerous as shoulds because they're almost never true. Never is something completely right or completely wrong or completely one way or another. And so when you start to put all of your energy and emphasis into believing that something is always going to happen. So for example, um, my mom never understands anything that I'm going through. Just a common belief to throw out there. Mm -hmm. Well, A, where's the proof that that's true? B, where's the proof that that's false? But also if you start to say always and never and things like that, you are taking your control out of that situation. And you therefore have no ability to influence that relationship, change that relationship for the better or for the worse. But that's completely out of your control. And a lot of times what we actually need to recognize is that, okay, a lot of times my mom doesn't understand what I'm going through. And again, I'm just totally making this up, but my Mm -hmm. mom doesn't understand what I'm going through a lot of times, 
So now there's that little bit of wiggle room that I can come in and start having conversations with her and do some exercises to help build that relationship up. It gives that control back to us. But yeah, I, I find a lot of times that when I catch myself saying always or never or words like that, all my fault, never my fault, that I, those are often beliefs that are not true. And I kind of catch those words and I'm like, oh, okay, what are we believing right now that's not accurate? What am I throwing away my control on? How do I reframe this and actually look at what's true instead of what I'm freaking out about? And then again, work on those beliefs and those actions that way. Totally. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely, oh, it's so easy to fall into all or nothing thinking. And like, it's, it is, I think the key to even being able to identify it as such is like you were saying, it gets easier to catch yourself while you're doing it because yeah. I mean, it's such an easy habit to fall into. Like there was one time I literally like spilled coffee all over my journal and I went, I like cried in front of my boyfriend and I was like, I fucking ruin everything. I ruin everything. And he had to stop me and be like, do you ruin everything though? Like, yeah. and it's like, no, there are a lot of times where I haven't ruined everything, right? I haven't yeah. fucked up my journal, but like, that was just what happened that day. Or I also... Do you ever feel like with trauma too, and with some of the people you work with that like once one really life altering negative event happens to them, it's easy for them to be like, well, bad things always happen to me because of this one thing that happened. Yeah. It's kind of this confirmation bias, right? So this one bad thing happens and then you're like, oh, this bad thing happened. Here's another bad thing. And here's another bad thing. And here's another bad thing. And your brain just starts focusing on all the bad things and kind of ignoring and pushing aside all the good things that happen. That's definitely something that can happen with trauma, but it's something that happens with everyone in everyday life too. Mm-hmm. Like take traffic, for example. I, okay. I don't know if you've ever been to Minneapolis, but Minneapolis roads are messed up. Like they're so complicated and confusing. Are they that like makes sense. curvy? Well, they're, they're curvy and there's, so for example, there's one highway that you merge onto you from one highway to another highway. And then in a quarter mile, that same highway that you just merged onto gets off on the left, but like five lanes over. And I don't know how they decided. I know, right? I don't know how they decided that was a good plan. But anyway, I was living in Minneapolis. That's where I went to college. And there's traffic there almost all the time. Notice the almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got into that mindset of like, I always get stuck in traffic. I always choose the wrong time. I always get stuck in traffic. Mm -hmm. I'm always late because I get stuck in traffic. And it's like, well, do you always get stuck in traffic? No. How can you choose to not get stuck in traffic a lot? So anyway, my point of ranting about Minneapolis roads is that it happens with trauma a lot. Yes, because you focus on those bad times and ignore everything good that can happen. But it just happens with people too. Like that's how brains work, unfortunately. (laughs) That's such a good point. It's like when you like buy a new car and then you start noticing the car you just bought everywhere you go. You're like, holy shit, a lot of people have my car. Yeah. And it's because you, it means something to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you read the book E Squared by Pam Groot or Grout? I don't know how you say her last no, name. Oh, I'm going to write it down. Yeah, it's so cool. It's like this nine, it's, it's a book of nine experiments you can do to prove that manifestation exists and that there's a higher power. And it's so cool. And the second experiment is um, that, that kind of confirmation bias that you find what you look for. And so you're mm-hmm. supposed to go a whole day looking for purple butterflies. That's one of the things you're supposed to look for. And I was like, it's November in Oregon. Like there's going to be no purple butterflies around. I don't even mm-hmm. think there's purple butterflies in the spring. But I was like, whatever. Okay. So I spent the whole day looking for purple butterflies. And right at the end of the day, I was watching a movie and this whole screen of purple butterflies came across. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, whoa, this is insane. I know, right? I was, it was crazy. But that just goes to show that when you're looking for the good, even the really obscure good, 
it will show up. Just like when you start to focus on the bad, that's all you're going to be able to see too. Yes. Whoa. That's wild. I got to check out that book. Do it. it literally, I'm such a nerd too. So I was like, okay, yeah. Manifestation spirituality. Oh wait, science experiments that can prove this. And they just, they've kept working and I'm like, okay, I'm sold. I'm done. This is it. <laughs> Whoa. I love that. Um, I want to ask you too, for, do you find in some of the, the healing that you help people with, do you ever help people like with creating boundaries through the work you do? Yeah. So boundaries is something I talk about a lot. So just to clarify, I'm not a therapist, so I don't Mm -hmm. like work one-on-one with clients on their trauma. I work more from Mm -hmm. an advocacy side of things, but Mm -hmm. one of the things that I talk about in my main mental health presentation, which is about how to support someone else is about setting up those boundaries. And that goes the same for someone who's healing in the present moment too. There are a lot of people in your life that are very well-intentioned, but they have no idea how to help you. They think that saying this or doing that or trying to shove you over to this is going to be beneficial when it's really not. And so I do talk a lot about, okay, how do you set up those boundaries? How do you have those conversations? What should those boundaries even look like um, to give you the best chance for healing? So yeah, that's definitely something I I talk a lot about. I think is really important for people to look at. I clearly wrote a lot of these questions from my own personal experience because that's something I struggle with. But um, where do you think is a good place for someone who struggles with boundaries? Because boundaries, like for me, why I struggle with them is like confrontation. Like it's sort of, Mm -hmm. it can feel like a form of confrontation. Where do you think is like a good place for someone to start? Yeah. So there's three kind of steps that I would encourage someone to start with. The first of which is just noticing when you feel uncomfortable so you can start to figure out where your boundaries should be. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people in kind of the general mental health space, like you pick up a book about mental health, it's probably going to talk about boundaries and it's going to say, oh, X, Y, and Z should be your boundaries. But different people are going to have different experiences. They're going to need different things. They're going to react to different things differently. And so everyone has unique boundaries. So the first Mm -hmm. thing I would encourage someone to do is just kind of go through life normally and recognize when you start to feel a little bit trapped, a little bit misunderstood, a little bit stepped on, whatever that like, ooh, feeling is for you, just kind of take note of that. And you'll start Mm -hmm. to recognize a pattern that, oh, when the grocery store is too crowded, I start to freak out. Like that's a boundary I need to work on. Or in another relationship, um, when my boyfriend tries to get me to go to therapy, that's a boundary. I don't feel comfortable when that happens. Mm -hmm. Just start to notice that and take note of when those things happen and what's causing those things. After that, I always recommend having a conversation with the person. And the way that I like to kind of have that conversation is don't yell at them for what they're doing wrong. Like if I walked up to you and I was like, you're being a horrible support system because you're doing X, Y, and Z wrong. And this is just awful. That's where that Mm -hmm. confrontation comes in. Cause then you're going to be on the defensive. You're going to feel bad. You're going to get angry. And then we're all going to yell at each other, which is not helpful. So I always Mm -hmm. recommend starting with something good. Like, Hey, Hannah, I love how much you want to support me. I'm so thankful. I have a friend like you in my life. And I'm really glad you've been with me through this past year. Okay. Now you're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Thanks, Jesse. I feel good now. (laughs) then, (laughs) then you can go into something like, you know, when you do this, when you try to force me to go to therapy, it makes me feel this way. It makes me feel Mm -hmm. trapped, angry, misunderstood, whatever that is. Instead, could you do this? So start with something good, state Mm -hmm. what they do that makes you uncomfortable, and then give them a suggestion of how to change. That's kind of a good format for having that conversation because it does avoid that confrontation. It doesn't make them feel like they're being a bad support system and it gives them concrete direction for how to help you better in the future, which is what you both want to do. Right. And the final piece of that is working on that guilt because there, you are going to feel a little bit guilty when you start to enforce your boundaries because people are going to be upset. 
you're pushing back when you've never pushed back before. You are challenging their perception of the world, of their relationship with you, whatever it is that you're challenging. And that's uncomfortable for people to change Mm -hmm. any sort of world paradigm. So recognize that their frustration, their annoyance, their surprise, that isn't about you. It's not about you being a bad person, you being demanding or needy or anything like that. It's just the shift that's happening within them. So try to change that perception of their reaction and and eliminate some of that guilt that way. But just to recap, first of all, recognize when you start to feel uncomfortable so you know where your boundaries should be. Have that conversation with them, starting with thanking them for something good, telling them what they're doing wrong or that makes you feel uncomfortable, and then giving a concrete suggestion. And then finally, try to eliminate some of that guilt by recognizing that their reaction is not about you. It's about their changing belief set. Whoa. Thank you for that. Cause I just learned a lot. Well, the other thing too, is like, I think it can be scary to make those boundaries also, because depending on how someone responds, that can also really show you where your relationship stands. Because if you make a boundary and, you know, I understand if people are put off by it for the first time, but if they literally are like, fuck you and your boundaries, you're an asshole for making them. Then it's like, well, that's not really someone you want in your life anyway. So that can be kind of a scary, like you're kind of testing the waters when you start to make those boundaries too. Mm -hmm. And especially if that person is someone you live with. So a romantic partner, a parent, Mm -hmm. someone like that, a child, you know, depending on where you are in your life. If that person is someone you live with, then you have to live with that animosity and that lack of boundaries. And that can be even more terrifying to start to approach. So I definitely think that that's a concern for a lot of people. Oh, damn. I think back to when I had like roommates and all the times I didn't say what I needed or wanted and then just secretly stewed in my room. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> left, left a passive aggressive post-it note. Like, could you please buy more toilet paper? And I was I like, know, why aren't like, you responding well to that? <laughs> please underlined, but you're like trying to be nice, but also super pissed off. Yes. Yes. Also, toilet paper. Why is it so hard for people to buy toilet paper? That was the same thing no, for no. me in my freshman year of college. It's like, why can we not keep the bathroom stocked? I don't get it. It's like, we're all pooping in here. We're all pooping in here. Get it together. Yeah. Buy some TP. Um, Okay. Also, I'm going to get into some more like pop culture questions in a second, just like funsies questions. But yeah, um, I'm clearly obsessed with you and the work you do. You talked about, (laughs) you talked about the importance of giving yourself grace. And that sort of, I feel like, uh, has been a part of everything we've been talking about thus far, but what, can you expand on that as well? Yeah. So we are our toughest critics. I cannot Mm -hmm. tell you how many times when I was struggling with my mental health that my voice was the loudest. I was the one calling myself crazy. I was the one calling myself fat and ugly and stupid and all these different things and yelling at myself for not being able to just get it together. Mm -hmm. And so we need to recognize that even though we want our healing journey to be this very nice linear upward line, it's not going to look like that. It's going to be a roller coaster, ups and downs and loops and forward and backwards, and it's not going to go how we want it to go. So if we have a trigger, if we have a flashback, a panic attack, dissociative episode, psychotic break, whatever it is, if you have any of those moments where it's not straight upwards motion, you have to take that minute and say, hey, I'm human. You know, this is not a perfect process. This is not something that's going to be this super easy thing to do. Healing from a mental illness is one of the most difficult things you will ever do in your life. It is 100% worth it, but it is the most difficult thing because you're not fighting something else. You're fighting yourself and you have to live Mm -hmm. with that battle 24 seven. You can't go to work, face off with a coworker and then go home and forget about it. No, that's something that's in you all the time. And like Mm -hmm. I said, there's going to be good times. There's going to be bad times. So 
allowing yourself those bad times, allowing yourself those crying, screaming in the shower moments, allowing yourself the heartbreak and the setback and the feelings of worthlessness and uselessness and just saying, Hey, I'm human and I'm going to give myself grace. I'm going to take a night. I'm going to eat three pounds of chocolate. And then tomorrow I'm going to get back up and I'm going to try again. That's what it means to really give yourself grace, especially, like I said, because you are your harshest critic and you are the one that you have to live with all the time. Hell yeah. Yeah, no, that's so true. I really do feel like, fuck, I had a thought and I totally lost it. No, (laughs) but like, I I do think it's so easy to, oh, here's what I was going to say. I find in my own experience, it's so easy when you have just like a really bad mental health day or week or month or whatever to be like, why am I even in therapy? This isn't even working. Like I'm such a disappointment to my loved ones, to my therapist. I'm not doing the work that I thought I was doing because I had this one bad episode or whatever. And it Mm -hmm. is like so important to be able to check yourself in those moments and be like, no, like one bad period doesn't mean that you're useless, that you're worthless, that the work you're doing is non-existent. Like, like you said, it's just not going to be like a linear upward trajectory because that's just like not how humans work. Yeah. And and two, two kind of stories on that, because that is so, so true. And I want to dive into that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Healing is like a blister and this is a really gross analogy, but just bear with me here. So Mm -hmm. you have a blister and you put a nice little bandaid over it and you're like, okay, cool. We're good. We're not going to touch it. It's all going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And then in order for it to heal, You have to take that Band-Aid off. You have to pop the blister and all of this gunk and gross stuff is going to come flying out. And then it's going to scab over and it's going to hurt. And then that scab is going to fall off. It's going to bleed again. And then it's going to scab. And it's gross. Like it's not this fun Mm -hmm. healing process. Mm -hmm. And that's what healing from mental illness looks like. You think you have it all together. And then you start Mm -hmm. going to therapy and you start working to heal. And all of the rest of it starts coming to the surface. Fuck. (laughs) Yeah. And you're like, oh, Jesus, this is not good. You know, this is worse. I should just stop. But that's what healing looks like. You have to get all of that out of you and work through that and sort through that and heal all of that in order to get to your end destinations. Like I said, it's not a pretty journey. And the second part is that you can only heal to the degree of your experiences in the present moment. So for Mm. example, when I was healing from my mental illness in high school, part of that was kind of a traumatic relationship. um, I thought I healed. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm good. You know, I did it. I did the work. We're good. We can move on with life sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then to be totally transparent here, the reason that I couldn't get into the military was I had one day of therapy, one medical record that said I had a history of self-harm on it. And Mm -hmm. self-harm is an automatic disqualification for entry into the military. And so when that happened, when that came up and I lost that dream because I chose not to lie and I chose to kind of honor that part of myself, I had Mm -hmm. to heal on a whole nother level. I had to go back and kind of work through so much of what I had already worked through again and at a deeper level, but I didn't know. I didn't have that experience that I could use to heal the parts of me that needed healing. And I couldn't heal those parts until I had that experience. So as you're going through life, especially if your mental illness happened young or your trauma happened young, when you graduate college, when you move out on your own, when you get married, when you have kids, all of these different kind of major life events, you move cities, whatever it is that can bring up another piece that needs to be healed. But that doesn't mean you healed incorrectly before. You couldn't have healed that piece because you didn't know that it affected you in that way or on that level. So that's partially why healing is going to be that roller coaster. You're going to go up, 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 up. Something's going to happen. You're going to dip. Then you're going to heal. And then something else, then you're going to dip, right? But you Mm -hmm. can't heal those parts until those things happen. It's like this sick game of gotcha, I guess. But that's kind of how healing works. You have to recognize that as you go throughout life. 
That's so real. I mean, for me, like something I struggle with the most is like, I lost my mom like a handful of years ago. And it's definitely like that where I'll have, I'll be really fine for a while. And then something will happen that triggers me. And I like backslide and I'm putting that in air quotes because I don't really think I am, but like, it feels like it in the moment where it's like, all of a sudden I'm a puddle on the floor and I miss my mom so much. And I'm so fucking angry that she's gone. And there's so much I wish I could talk about with her. And then it's Mm -hmm. like, and but it's like, I thought I was okay with it. But all this to say, you're never fully going to be like, you're never going to get a certificate. That's like, you're healed forever. Now everything's fine. You're going to be, you're going to have to readdress it throughout your life as more things come up, you know? Mm-hmm. And I love that. I wish I got a certificate. That would be cool. I can like <laughs> check that box that I'm done. Right. But yeah, healing a very commonly accepted definition of healed, like completed healing is not that you never think about your trauma. You never think about your mental illness. It's completely eradicated from your life, but that it mm-hmm. doesn't control you anymore. You can mm-hmm. go about your daily life. You can be successful, 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 successful mm-hmm. and happy and loved and have positive relationships and not have that part of your past completely controlling you. I personally am glad that I still think about my mental health history. It's given Mm -hmm. me an amazing career. It's given me deeper levels of empathy and strength and compassion that I employ in professional and personal relationships. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good that can come out of this, but I think it's kind of unrealistic for people to think that when they heal, it all just completely goes away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there's, with trauma, there's so much so many feelings of like guilt and shame around trauma in general, where like, I think you kind of just want to be able to say like, well, those feelings of guilt and shame are gone because I've done this work. Like you never want to have to revisit them because they're so hard to go through, but the acceptance that like inevitably they will come up again and I've handled it once before I can do it again. It's going to be okay. I think is kind of the only way through. I don't know if that was eloquently said, but you know what no, I mean? No, it was. And, and that's the thing though, is like, yes, you will hit this next life event or this next trigger that's going to set you back a little bit, but you have gained all of these healing mechanisms and coping skills throughout the healing process that you've done so mm-hmm. far. So now your recovery from this little blip is going to be easier and faster. And then you gain mm-hmm. some more skills and you have the next blip and then easier and faster. So you're not going to crash all the way back down to zero. You're just going to slide a little bit and then go back up the roller coaster. I don't know. I like roller coasters. This is a good analogy. But um, I, love, I love any analogy. I'm, I'm still, I'm all about the blister. The blister one sent me. That was a really good analogy. Yeah. Great. Good. I'm glad it wasn't too gross for this because it's like. <laughs> no, I was like, hell yeah, let's talk about so. blisters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Questions just like about you. Um, what was junior high like for you? awful. Um, yeah, so same. I, Why? So I, I think junior high was junior high good for anyone. I literally don't know anyone that really liked if it was, high. I'm like, we're not going to be close friends. Yeah. It's probably not going to work out. Okay. So <laughs> I went to a very small Lutheran school. Um, my mom was a teacher there, which has nothing to do with the story. She was the best teacher mm-hmm. and I love her to death. Um, but she was a teacher there and my graduating class had 14 kids in it from eighth grade, 14 children. Yes. Shit. So I was with essentially the same group of kids 20, well, not 24 seven, but all through the school day from first grade through eighth grade. And it was a very clicky environment. And I was not in, I was not cool. I thought I was pretty cool, but I was not cool by social standards. And so it was very isolating. Um, I didn't have a great social experience. I was the kid that like other kids ran away from on the playground when we were in third and fourth grade. So that was me. Um, But the other part of this is that I'm 
very inquisitive. I like to ask questions. I like to have debates. I like to understand why things are the way that they are. And in Mm -hmm. that particular school and religious system, uh, that was not encouraged. So when I'd ask a question about like, okay, well, why does God do this? Or why is this this way? Or why do we believe this? I would get met with the, well, that's just the way it is. Or that's what the Bible says. Or that's what Jesus said. And it's like, okay, cool. But can we have a discussion about this so I can learn? Because I'm not just going to blindly accept something that's not the type of person I am. And so my my kind of intellectual side in that regard was definitely stifled a little bit. That all being said, I think it was a way better experience than it would have been if I was in public school because the academic level allowed for more tailored, um, tailored instruction and tailored levels Mm -hmm. of instruction. My mom was a great teacher. I got to like help out with PE planning and stuff. So that was really cool. I got to play a lot of different sports, beautiful campus. So there were a lot of really good things, but like the social and religious aspects of it were not the favorite parts of my life. <laughs> oh my gosh. Same Z's. That's why I always write that. Like I ask people that question because I'm like, I just feel like it says, I'm just so fascinated by like who people become and who they were in junior high. Like I love the show pen 15 for that reason, because it's like, I just think more people need to be comfortable talking about how like junior high fucking sucked, but that doesn't exactly. like, look at us now. You know what I yeah. mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, where'd you grow up by the way? So I was born in Puyallup, Washington, which is just south of Seattle, but I spent from three to 18 in Portland, Oregon. Love that. Have you ever been to Voodoo Donuts? Are you from Portland? Fuck no. Okay. I'm not that cool. I'm from like a suburb of Chicago. Okay. So Voodoo Donuts. Voodoo Donuts is the very touristy attraction in Portland, but I think their donuts are awful. I don't think they're good donuts. Hot yeah. takes and with like, Jesse Byer. I know, right? But everyone's like, oh my God, voodoo donuts. And I was like, no, 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 no. I grew up in a little town called Banks, actually like six miles outside of Banks. So I was middle of nowhere. Um, yeah. And there is a thrift way in Banks that makes the best donuts every single morning fresh in their store. And I've never had a better donut in my life. So if you come to the Portland area, you have to go to Banks and Jim's thrift way and get donuts from there. That's the end I of my brain about donuts. <laughs> love that intel. Donuts are important. You know, I always forget how much I like them. And then when I have them, I'm like, shit, I love donuts. I know. Well, it's like, it's one of those things that, I don't know, maybe if you're some fancy culinary person, you can make it home. But I stick to like cookies and cake. And so I have those a lot. And it's like, oh, these are great. And it's like, meh, donuts. And then you go get a good donut. You're like, wait, donuts. And they're so good. Yeah. You're like audibly like, wow. Yes. <laughs> um, what was your first job? Mm, I think I was a soccer referee first. I, okay. So I've, I've never had like a traditional nine to five. I've never done that. Dope. Um, so yeah, I've always like freelanced it everywhere and camp counseled a lot. Um, but yeah, I think my first job was refing soccer. I think. Was that stressful? Like, did people get mad at you all the time? Oh my God. That's why I quit. So I refed soccer from... 16 to was it really only until I went to college felt like way longer than that but I ref soccer for a couple years in high school my god it's like um, a little embarrassing anyway so I ref soccer for a couple years and I ref basketball as well when I was in college and the amount of screaming that everyone does at you the parents the coaches the players like you're just being screamed at for hours on end and I'm like I'm done like I I don't want to be a part of this if you want to go yell at another ref go for it um, but I, that being said, I did have a lot of really good experiences. The like 18 year old boys and then the six year old kids were my favorite groups to ref because the six year olds, like 
you're just another coach. They have no idea what they're doing. They will stop in the middle of the game and be like, can you tie my shoe? And I'm like, sure. They're just really (laughs) cute um, and, and fun to be around. And then the 18 year old guys, it's good soccer. It's good basketball. It's fast. Mm -hmm. It's fun. Um, and yeah, they get sassy, but you can kind of sass back at them where you can't really do that with like a 13 year old. Cause that's a little weird, but, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I think repping soccer was my first job, but, uh, I, I did end up quitting that just because I was done being screamed at for hours on end. Oh my God. I would not last a fucking day. That's like literally my nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I'll yeah. know that I went to hell if I'm like, if I'm like a soccer <laughs> ref, like right after I die, I'll be like, fuck. There you I messed go. Up. There you go. Um, what was your favorite outfit that you wore to a school dance? Okay, so I went to Catholic high school, so school dances were a little unique as well. Um, oh my God, yes, tell me all about it. I love this. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm the like small private school kid. So I already talked about middle school. We didn't have any mm-hmm. dances then at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first dance was when I was in high school and my high school graduating class was 93. So it was a pretty small high school, small Catholic high school. Um, so the whole like leave room for Jesus joke was something that was said to us on a regular basis. Like that's a thing. (laughs) If pelvises were touching, you would get sent home. Oh shit. Yeah. (laughs) So we had like teachers and some of the administrators that would wander through the crowds of kids and like yell at you if you were dancing too close to a guy. Um, and first strike that just say something. Second strike, they made a mark on your hand that was like, oh, you've already gotten strike one. And then third strike, they called your parents and sent you home. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Gosh, I did not. Okay, so I went to, I'm just kind of like talking about school dances here. I'll get to my outfit in a second. Please. um, I went to prom twice, junior and senior year. Both of them were bad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So my junior year, I went with a senior and he was like very puppy dog obsessed with me he Mm -hmm. invited me to prom with like seven jars of peanut butter and a bouquet of roses um and he was a sweet guy but like I don't know he just said some things that night like one of the songs that we danced to was from um the first 50 shades of gray movie I don't even remember what song it was but that song came on and it'd been on the radio it was a pretty popular song and so I just kind of kind of started singing along to it and he looked at me he's like oh of course you would know this song and I'm like What's that supposed to mean? (laughs) Trying to say. Yeah. So that was junior prom. And then senior prom, I went with another senior guy from my class and he like sat at the opposite end of the table from me at dinner and kind of ignored me the whole night. And so that was super great too. Um, Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Favorite thing I wore. What did I even wear? Um, Not my senior prom dress. (laughs) (laughs) not that it was okay so there's this organization in Portland that's called Plato's Closet and it's a really cool organization it was started by a couple high school kids a couple years ago and they um they take use gently used prom dresses and then they give they take up rent the whole convention center and fill it up with prom dresses and jewelry and shoes and all these different things that's so nice and then you can come in and take a prom dress for free so you can get a free prom dress and it's all donated gently used stuff they have so many different designs and colors and things like that um so it's a great organization did not love the dress I got from them my senior prom year. But uh, <laughs> I guess to answer your question after going on all these stories, um, it would have been junior prom. I wore this floor length purple dress, like royal purple, um, like a chiffon dress. And it had a diamond cutout right across like my chest and then a high neck and open oh, back. Pretty. And it was really pretty. Um, so yeah, I think that was probably my favorite thing that I wore. Oh, that sounds so regal and beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. 
Oh my gosh. What a time. I truly like school dances, like fuck them. I couldn't like, you could not pay me to go to one now. (laughs) I would never go back and do it again. They were just uncomfortable and awkward. Did y'all take pictures like at someone's house before with all your parents there? Yes. Nightmare. It was nightmare. unique. It was definitely unique. Yeah. I didn't get a good picture of me in that purple dress though. So I guess I'm happy with that. But yeah, it was like, okay, line up on this patio and do the like prom pose. We were holding mm-hmm. each other's waist. And yeah, that was super great too. <laughs> and then everyone's parents are meeting each other. And like where I grew up, it was like the parents were judging the other parents while the oh. students were judging the other students. I was like, what is all this snobbery taking place? We don't yeah. need to do that. I know that should be left in high school. And then to see all the parents do that too, you're like, wait, we still have to do this when we grow up too. <laughs> yes. Get a grip. Do some, what's horse therapy called again? Equine assisted therapy. Do some equine assisted therapy and like get to the root of why you have to act like a snob as an adult person. Like why do you have to act like a high schooler? Yep. There is something under the surface there. <laughs> Definitely. Some insecurity is lying underneath there. Yes. yes. Something to get to the bottom of. Um, who was your cartoon like crush growing up? Kim Possible, I think. Oh, I love. So do you mean like romantic crush or like their awesome crush? Oh my God, either one. It's like a totally open-ended question. Yeah, so I pretty much wanted to be Kim Possible, I think. They were yes. like amazing. Um, and then I also really liked Phineas and Ferb because they were so inventive and they had all these crazy adventures with like a shovel and a bucket and, you know, oh, their yeah. mind and stuff. So yeah, probably those two or three, I guess. Oh my God. Kim Possible was the shit. She had amazing hair and a cool outfit. I live yes. for her crop top. Yes. And then the music too, like the music will come on now and I'm still like, uh huh, yeah. I'm singing and dancing to that. Yes. Oh, what a time. I love that show. <laughs> um, who would your celebrity bestie be and why? Okay. So, um, are you a dancing with the stars fan? Oh my God. I I'm not, but like, I have a lot of friends who are, so I might know who this person is. Okay. Are you an ice skating fan? Mm, I only know of like the nineties ice skaters who were in the Olympics. Okay. So, um, you might actually know this person then, but anyway, um, so I just started watching dancing with the stars this season because Caitlin Bristow is on it. Um, yes. And you were on off the vine. I was, I know, which is like so surreal to me still when they said yes, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so that so was cool. Um, See, so yeah, I'm like, go oh, Caitlin. But anyway, so I, I started watching this season and um, there's an ice skater named Johnny Weir on there. Do you know him? <gasps> yes. Yes. So I am obsessed with him because he's so authentically himself and just unapologetically who he is. And I think that is so incredible. And I think he's a cool dude and funny and like such a good human being when you listen to some of the things that he says. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I'm not super up in like celebrity culture and things like that. So there's probably mm-hmm. a better fit for me out there somewhere. But when you said that, <laughs> I was like, Johnny's awesome. Probably because I just watched the show last night. So yeah, I guess Johnny Weir. I love that answer. Johnny Weir seems like a great time. And I so agree. Like, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier. What like, it's good to have close friends who are like unapologetically af- unafraid to be who they are because that rubs off on you. And then you can mm-hmm. just like you know, take on the world as a friendship duo. I love that. Absolutely. And his and Brit's relationship, Brit's his pro dance partner, they're like best friends. And it's so cute to see them together. And one dance, he was struggling with something and she literally took him to an ice skating rink and was like, go skate, go do your thing. And then it turned out to be awesome. And I was like, what a good friendship. Like, yes. (laughs) So sweet. I love that. Do you have a hype up song? And if so, what is it? Oh, yes. I have many. Um, I'm just going to kind of like start rattling them off. So All Night Longer by Sammy Adams. I don't know if you know that song. 
Not um, write it down. Okay. It's yeah. That was like my junior year of high school song, soccer, soccer season song. Um, so yeah, oh, all night yeah. longer by Sammy Adams. Um, oh my gosh. What are some of my ones right now? Um, I can't even think pretty much anything. So there's a, a guy named Sam Tinez. It's T I N N E S Z. I don't know how to mm-hmm. say that exactly, but any of his songs are amazing. Um, love twisted by Missio is just like, so just be you like the, one of the lines of the song, everyone goes out a little twisted and it's like, yep. Like no one's life is perfect. No one is going to have this beautiful mosaic of everything that happens. So like, just roll with the punches and go out and be yourself. And so I really love that song. Um, also, um, Jeremy Renner, have you ever heard him sing? No. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. You need to get his latest album and then listen to all of his other songs as well, because a, he's a really good singer, but also just some of the beats that he has are like, yes, I want to rock out to this forever. So yeah, all of those. <laughs> Fun. Oh my gosh. I love this question too, because it always introduces me to new music that I haven't heard of. Cause I'm, I like listen to the same, like 10 songs over and over. Like I'm not original. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's hard to yeah. find new music. Yeah, it is. Um, I recently got YouTube music and like paid for the $10 a month subscription and it'll like every once in a while introduce new songs into your playlist. And it's always songs that I love. So I'll just shuffle through that sometimes and get some recommendations, but I'm the same way. I play like the top 15 songs off my playlist just over and over and over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I always wanted to be that like hip person that like could find like underground bands and like make a mix CD for all my friends that has like the perfect like musical arc. And I'm like, it's never going to be me. (laughs) That's literally my best friend with country music. I love country music as well, but it's not as like hypey as other types of music, but yeah, that's literally him. Every time I'm like, I just found this song. Have you heard it? He's like, Jesse, I've been listening to them for a year. I'm like, oh. (laughs) I always like that too. I have so many like cool friends like that. And I'm I always feel like I'm so behind. Yeah. Just just turn it around though. And then like every week or two, text them and be like, wait, what do I need to listen to? And then they'll give you the inside scoop before everyone else figures it out. That's a great call. See, you you reframed that too, right? There we go, Jesse. There we go. The most important thing we've done today. Real time. Um, okay. My final question for you, Jesse, this is like, I'm like this hour flew by. It's been such a joy to talk to you. Um, what is something considered aspirational that you want, but you don't have it yet? Mm. Um, I want my next book to be a New York times bestseller. That's something that I'm like kind of future pacing for probably four years out from now, but yeah, that's a big professional goal of mine that I want to have happen. Hell yeah. I've said hell yeah like a million times, but that's just because I so passionately agree with everything you're saying. I 100% think that's going to happen for you. It's going to be a book tour, honey. You're going to wear a bunch of cute, cozy sweaters. You're going to talk about your book. You're going to heal people with your writing even more than you already have. I am so excited for you. Thank you. Yes. I will invite you to all my cozy sweater tour stops and there we go. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It would be the highest honor. I will bring you congratulatory donuts. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. It's happening. (laughs) Um, Jesse, this was such a blast. Thank you so much for coming on. Will you please tell my listeners where they can find you all the things, plug all the things. Absolutely. So I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Jesse Byer International, which is J-E-S-S-I-B as in boy, E-Y-E-R International, which I'm sure can be in the show links. You don't have to try to remember Mm -hmm. that. Um, But yeah, come hang out with me on Facebook and Instagram. And then my book is available on Amazon and it is on Kindle Unlimited. So if you are a subscriber, you can read it for free. Amazing. Oh my gosh. Y'all check out Jessie, check out her book. Thank you so much again for coming on and uh, we'll see y'all next week. Thank you, Jessie. Of course. Thank you.